Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, there you are. I'm so glad to see you all. Thanks for coming to worship at church. I'll tell you what, I will never take for granted being together with the family of God in the house of God again. Good morning to all of you as well who are worshiping with us from home this morning. I'm excited for where we are because as you heard over the last couple weeks, we're beginning to see house-to-house groups get traction all over the metro area. Remember in Acts 20, Paul said, we preach the word to you publicly and house to house. And I think the way Jesus built the church at that time reflected what was going on in their geopolitical context. And he hasn't stopped building his church. He's building it somewhat similarly today as we navigate this strange year of 2020. We are going forward both publicly worshiping God together in the house of God and house to house. And as these groups are getting going over these weeks, one of our house to house groups is actually with us live this morning. So uh, Jim, good morning. Are you there? Uh, we are here. Good morning, Ryan. Man, it's exciting to see you guys. Uh, I think it kind of bridges the gap. Our church family who's gathered here and our church family who's gathered in places like there. Jim and Marcy are in the, the University Observatory Park area. And like this, pockets of believers that are part of the Denver United family are gathering this morning and over the coming weeks across the metro area, north, south, east, and west, and then coming together to study the Word of God, uh, have a good meal afterward. I'm kind of thinking I would like to be there as well. Uh, Man, we are so grateful that you guys took uh, took the risk, accepted the the invitation or the nod. You know, it's always been Jesus' way to build His church through a kingdom of priests, not a couple of priests and a bunch of spectators. And thank you, Jim, Marcy, for uh, stepping up with so many of our other leaders and being really like like deputy pastors of Denver United. Uh, Hey, as we get ready to jump into the Word here, would you pray for us together, for our church family there and here, and then we'll, we'll study the Word? Absolutely. We're grateful to be with you guys. And uh, we're on fun time, but uh, let everybody give away from these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that first can, we just, can we shout out for those guys and let them know that we see them? Right on. All right. All right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the morning. We thank you that we can be together, physically together. We pray for the groups all over town and the individuals. Uh, Thanks for this time. Lord, we pray you get our hearts ready to worship you. We pray you would bless Rob and fill him to bring the word. We pray that you would fill our hearts to uh, hear it and to uh, walk into it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. You all ready to study the word this morning? 
All right. You don't sound ready to study the Word. I feel readier than you sound. So I'm just going to help you get ready. All right, you know, um, uh, as the summer's drawing to a close, we're all kind of doing our final lawn work. I've been thinking about, um, a little bit nostalgically, about the seasons of life because my own kids are, are all teenagers. Today is the 15th birthday of our youngest, Anderson Thomas Brendel. And um, so as we are entering Anderson Thomas Brendel, where art thou? We can just... Oh, he's not here. He left. All right. Uh, well, in any case, if you see him, tell him happy birthday. Um, we are um, taking, at least I am, taking everything so intentionally that I think I spent years taking for granted, right? When your kids are little, then every, everyone tells you, oh man, it's going to go so fast. Hold on to these years. But all you want is for them to get out of diapers or to be able to like wipe their own nose or buckle themselves into the car. The days, as they say, are fat, are slow, but the years are fast. And then you wake up and everybody's in high school or college. Well, on Saturday mornings, that's kind of come home, home to roost for me. I remember so many Saturday mornings thinking about all the yard work to do. And really, my values primarily were, if I'm honest, getting it done quickly and efficiently. And then secondarily, the time with the family and aware that, that training the kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord is our ongoing responsibility. Still, I think I defaulted, if I'm honest, to the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. I remember being like, come on, kids, get it together. Let's do this. Or you know what? If you need to go play dad, I'll just quickly knock it out. I'll do it. And I'll make sure the lines in the grass are really, really straight. And I think this tension has caught up to me now because everything is so layered with meaning in these teenage years where the kids are out there helping with the yard work and I'm like, <laughs> and I just come up and give them a hug. But how many years did I feel like I maybe looking back missed the forest for the trees? I think that experience sort of encapsulates something that I'm coming to understand about God as our Father and how we interact with Him as His covenant community. We're continuing this morning in our series called Strange Land, looking at the book of Genesis and studying the lives of the patriarchs and matriarchs, the founding fathers and mothers of our faith. And in Genesis 26, we pick up the story again today. A severe famine, the Bible teaches, struck the land as had happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. Isaac, of course, is Abraham's son, and this is his story. This is his lap around the track of founding covenant relationship and covenant community with God. So verse 2, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt like you might be inclined to do in a famine, but do as I tell you. Listen, verse 3, live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so you see here affirmed in Isaac the son what was established with Abraham the father, and that is God's covenant relationship with his people. And what we see as a premise for this month's study from the beginning, God has asked his covenant people to live out that relationship as strangers in a strange land. He says it to Isaac, who was 
a, a resident alien. He had grown up in Canaan, this foreign land, which God told Abram to leave his father and mother and go find. And in verse 3, God says to Isaac, live here as a foreigner, and I will give all these lands to you and your descendants. And what you see is a sort of dichotomy that prefigures the kingdom of God as it comes on earth. Because he says, live here in this land. This land is Canaan. This land is what will go on to be known as the promised land, the land of Israel, woven into this covenant relationship with the people of Israel. But at this point, he says, I want you to live here as a foreigner. I want you to live here as an alien and stranger. And so we see from the very beginning how God's kingdom works. There's two things I want you to notice here. One is that the kingdom of heaven isn't something that's, that's out there, separate, distant, or other. The kingdom of heaven is something that is here being redeemed and restored, right? So here's Isaac effectively living in pre-Canaan. It's like the promised land, but it hasn't quite yet been promised. So he's living in the land that would be their ancestral home, part and parcel to the covenant, but he's asked to live there as an alien and stranger. And see, I think as we walk with God, we're tempted to look at this earth as the temporary holding place, but really something that God can't be bothered with for long. And heaven is somewhere up there, out there, distant and totally other, right? And especially for generations that live in times of conflict or hardship or trouble, that narrative becomes intensified, that this earth is passing away and God's going to ball it up, throw it in the trash, light it on fire, blow it up, and that we're going to go somewhere else. It's like in Les Mis, the little girl whose whole life was misery, she sings there there is a castle on a cloud, right? I think we look at heaven like that, like it's a castle on a cloud somewhere. But what God shows us from the beginning and the Lord Jesus affirms is that the kingdom of heaven isn't up there, out there, or somewhere other. It's here being redeemed and being restored. That's why Jesus said the good news is this when he came and began preaching the gospel. Not that one day if you do more right than wrong or if you accept me, you'll get to go away to heaven someday. But his good news was that the kingdom of heaven is coming here to you. God is restoring all things. And the other truth that we see sort of foreshadowed in the founding fathers is that the kingdom is already and not yet. Like Canaan is Canaan. This land is the land which God who lives outside of time promised to his people. But it hasn't been fully realized or conceived as the promised land yet. And so Jesus said he had a way of capturing these galactic paradoxes in simple phrases like a time is coming and is already here. Well, which is it? Is it coming or is it here? The kingdom of God is here and it is coming. So we live a foretaste. We live a little slice of heaven coming more and more to encapsulate life on earth until Jesus returns and all things are made new. You see that and I think it's worth pointing out as a theological foundation for the kingdom of God from the very beginning of his covenant promise. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? 
Verse 12, skip down for the sake of time. Isaac planted his crops that year and he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted. For the Lord blessed him. He didn't get lucky. It wasn't just a good precipitation year. God blessed his crops and they grew and he was prosperous. He became a very rich man and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines, the native inhabitants of this land, became jealous of him. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt, living in an arid climate, being agrarian um, in in their economy. Well water was essential not only for business success, but for living and sustenance. So they filled up his wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father, Abraham. Finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country and said, go somewhere else for you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away to the Gerar Valley where he set up their tents and settled down. He reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. So more wells, more filling in of the wells. Isaac also restored the names that Abram, Abraham had given to those wells. So it seems like what's happening here is sort of a two steps forward and one step back progression. Isaac, on the one hand, inherited the covenant promise of God, right? And on the other hand, kept facing opposition. On the one hand, God blesses his business. His crops are abundant. He is wealthy and prosperous. But on the other hand, every time he gets some traction and cultivates some land and gets it growing, somebody comes and fills in his wells. And so he has to move on and he keeps on digging these wells. And I look at that and I'm like, God, it seems so inefficient, Like if you're trying to establish your kingdom on earth, if you're trying to build this covenant heritage among these people, why not just bless them and keep them from getting their wells stopped up ongoingly? But God, it seems, both blesses his crops and allows his enemies to come in and slow down the progress. And I kind of want point A to point B, shortest distance between two points, and God seems to author this meandering path. God blesses Isaac lavishly, and he lets his wells keep getting stopped up. You ever feel like you're going in life, but you keep having to backtrack because you keep having to dig more wells? So our title this morning is Digging Wells. Verse 19, the story continues. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But then the shepherds from Gerar came and claimed the spring and said, this is our water. So they took their wells. They argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Argument. And his men then dug another well. But again, there was a dispute over it. So he named it Hostility. Abandoning that well too, Isaac moved on and, you guessed it, dug another well. This time there was no dispute over it, so Isaac named the place Rehoboth, which means open space, for he said, at last, at last the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. You can tell Isaac's story as a a progressive sequence of digging wells and then having enemies come and stop them up or 
take them from him. And rather than fighting over them, he just moves on because God seems to have seen fit to ask him always to be a stranger in a strange land. And so he's two steps forward and one step back. He's prospering, but he's struggling. He's thriving, but he's facing opposition. Isaac does it right, and then it goes wrong, and then he gets some more traction, and then it goes right, and then it goes wrong, and this is his life. And it reveals two sort of reductionist narratives of Christian faith that I think we live. If you've been around the church block at all, you'd be familiar with these. One of them says that if you're God's children, if you're faithful to God, he will bless you. And the scripture does indeed teach this. This passage does, and I believe the whole council of scripture affirms it, right? To be God's people, we should expect his blessing. And so what we do based on that half-truth is create the rest of the narrative that if you're faithful to God, you're blessed all the time. Have you ever been around a culture where you ask, how are you, like the obligatory greeting that we all do, and instead of, you know, good or what's up, not much, what the answer is blessed. How are you? Blessed. Blessed and highly favored, prosperous, overcoming in the name of Jesus. Head and not the tail. Ever, anyone ever been around head and not the tail culture where you're not allowed to be the tail? Or else people look at you like, don't speak, don't confess that here. Or there's a second faith narrative. And, and, and listen, that's not wrong, right? It's just incomplete. There's a second faith narrative that says, to follow Jesus is to suffer. In this world, you will have trouble. And there have been whole movements, denominations, sects of the church that have grown up around the poverty gospel that if you really love Jesus, you struggle. And the more struggle you have, the more authentically you're living for Jesus. And so to claim faith and to cling to Jesus in the face of the struggle, that's what the good Christian life looks like. And they're not wrong. They're half right. But those are invariably pitted against one another. And those are two churches that not only have nothing to do with one another, but either don't know the other exists or spend half of their time chucking rocks across the divide. And the fact is, neither is wrong and both are half right. He acquired so many flocks, verse 14, Herds, sheep, goats, servants that the Philistines came and filled up his wells. The prosperity led to opposition. And that's kind of the way life in the kingdom of God looks. Blessing and hardship. They're both part of life with God. It's supposed to be all suffering and sacrifice, or all blessing and bliss in our eyes. Have you ever been cruising along, though, in faith? Everything's going well until it isn't? Maybe you spent 2018 putting together the business plan, taking your dream, putting it on paper, starting to save for it, burning the midnight oil while keeping your day job in order to pay the bills, and then sometime halfway through 2019, you 
took the plunge, quit your day job, hung up a shingle. It started working. You started getting customers or clients and gaining traction. And you're like, God has favored us. He led us in this direction. He gave us this idea and the training and knowledge to be able to do it. Now he's favoring us. See proof that God is in this. I'm doing it for you, Jesus. I'm doing it for you. And you hear the, servant, the sermons about not sucking in the name of Jesus, right? And gaining influence and doing the stuff of the world 10 times better than the world's doing it. And you're like, I'm doing it. I'm going. And then you get to March and the government forces your business closed because of a pandemic that you could, couldn't possibly have accounted for in your SWOT analysis. And then you burn through the little bit of reserve cash you have left, and two months later, you're taking your shingle down, going, who sinned, me or my father, that you killed my business? Anyone ever been going along in God's blessing and then have the rug pulled out from under your feet? You've prayed and waited and believed for that companion, that partner, You've been lonely and given that to God. You've learned how to let him fill those holes in your heart that only he can fill. You've allowed him to work on you when you'll, all you really wanted him to do is bring along someone who's perfectly suited for you. You've grown, you've healed, you've prepared, and finally you meet her. And sometime along the way, she falls in love with you. You get married and everything seems right and you're like, ah, oh, I'm living in the blessing of God. This is what it's supposed to be like. And then you get that diagnosis you're like, how could this happen? What did I do wrong? Where did I miss you, God? And then you didn't imagine being a widow or a widower in your 30s. These are stories of people in our church family. And if we don't have a kingdom understanding that allows for the fullness of our experience with God, we end up doing shenanigans like this to one another. Well, you know what? It's just that you didn't have enough faith. Anyone ever been told that? You just didn't have enough faith. If you had more faith, bad things wouldn't have happened. And I'll tell you what, I've heard hundreds of stories of why people left the church over the course of 20 years of pastoral ministry, more that than any other reason. You know, I love God, it's just his people that I'm done with. I'm so burned by the church. Normally, they're not burned by the corporation. They're burned by a couple of individuals who say probably well-meaning, foolhardy things to them. Like, oh, I'm sorry you lost your business. You just didn't have enough faith. Really? So you're saying if I did religion better, like you, obviously, then this wouldn't have happened to me. That's exactly what Job went through. Could it be that God's plan A allows for authors, blessing, and hardship? Mark chapter 10, Jesus' story, Peter began to speak up. What's new? We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as much. along with persecution. So if you're having a hard time hearing it from me, hear it from Jesus. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. See, that's where it gets fully good. 
kingdom come, all of those troubles go away. The Apostle John got to peek behind the curtain, see a glimpse of how it goes down at the end, and he said, Jesus' dwelling is with us. The dwelling of God is with men, and there will be no more tears, and no more sorrow, and no more hardship. But as for here and now, yes, whoever loses his or her life for my sake will find it, rich, abundant, overflowing, and with it, hardship, persecution, opposition, trouble. Theologian N.T. Wright in his wonderful book, Surprised by Hope, observed this, left to ourselves, we lap in, lapse rather into a kind of collusion with entropy. You know, entropy, the dissolution toward chaos. Anyone else experienced the year 2020 as a sort of collusion with entropy? Some of you are like, I'm going to need the row of mind students to explain what a collusion with entropy is after service. Just ask one of those smarty pants. They'll tell you. Come on, that was a little funny. You guys are so quiet. We don't have to pretend like we're not here. I mean, COVID doesn't mean you can't laugh. Or at least give me like the courtesy laugh. I was trying here. I'm trying to make you laugh. I thought it was funny. All right, left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, acquiescing in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but that there's nothing much we can do about them. And we are wrong. Our task in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. Living in this world en route to our eternal home is a sign pointing to Jesus' res resurrection and is an advanced taste of his restoration work. We're beacons of hope in a hopeless world. We're little expressions of Jesus saying to a world in search of something that lasts, Behold, I am making all things new. The way of life in the kingdom that's coming foreshadows the way of life in the kingdom come. In verse 4, God said, Through your descendants, Isaac, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So now we show in part what then will be in full. Now we give a glimpse, a hopeful picture of how God will make all things new and put all wrongs to rights. Verse 23, and we'll wrap it up here. From there, Isaac moved to Beersheba, where the Lord appointed, appeared rather to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father Abraham, he said, do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant. Then Isaac built an altar there and worshiped the Lord. He set up his camp at this place and dug another well and went on living with the blessing and the hardship. And notice God's 
renewal, re-upping of his covenant. It's in the future. He says, I will bless you. I will multiply you. They will be a great nation. I will do this because I have made a promise and I will keep it. But there's one promise that is in the present. Not I will be with you on that day if you endure. I am with you. All these things are happening in part. They will happen in full. But I am with you. God's restoring all things and the restored kingdom is our home. But as for now, for here, in the meantime, God's win is being with us. Perhaps the method in the madness, why the two steps forward and one step back, why the meandering path and all the inefficiency, why allow the hardship along with the blessing now, God says, I am with you. Jesus, in his last words to his faithful followers before ascending to heaven, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen, all authority. I could wrap it up now. This isn't a neck and neck race with me and the devil. I already won. All authority means all authority. Therefore, you all go and make disciples. Go and live it out. Go and depend on my strength and grace. Go and accomplish this mission I'm sharing with you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I will be with you always to the very end of this age. See, Jesus already had all authority. He could have snapped, blinked, called on a few angels and finished the deal. Instead, he entrusted it to us who would have blessing in his name, who would face hardship in his name. And he said, I will be with you. And the win is for us to establish that kingdom that is coming with Jesus at the helm, depending on him and being with him all the while. I think it's not our achieving that he's after so much, though that's what our culture prizes. He doesn't promise we'll always be victorious or we'll always get it right. I think there's something in us that wishes that's what this covenant were about. Something in us that wants our heavenly father to to look at us and be proud. His win isn't us always making the grade or scoring the points or earning the business. I've discovered as I'm walking their latter years with my parents that I have a core memory. Maybe it was just a one-time thing. Maybe it wasn't always like this, but somehow it got a line of code in my firmware And without even realizing it, I found myself understanding God in later years through the prism of this core memory. And it was my dad doing yard work on a Saturday morning who was very interested in the yard work being done efficiently and right. I mean, if I make the the rows, the swath straight, his were straighter. And um, I remember I was a little kid and... 
I was out there with him. He had his big mower and was out front and I had my little plastic toy mower and I was pushing it along behind him. But back then I was a little distractible, less laser focused. And so I'd be pushing along and then I'd veer over here and then I'd get doing something else. My father would stop, turn the mower off, come get me, put me back behind him and he'd say, we're mowing the lawn, we gotta keep at work. And then we'd go and this would happen again and again. Now, of course, he knew full well and he probably knew that I knew in my childish mind that I wasn't really mowing anything. He was doing the work and he could have done it a lot more efficiently if he said, you know what, go inside with your mom and we'll play later. But I realized over time, I pieced it together that as he was learning to be a father and to be a son of God, what he chose was being with me. That was more valuable than getting the lawn mowed efficiently. And that's how your heavenly father looks at you. In this world, you will have trouble, but hold on to me because I've overcome the world. That's what he says to you. His win isn't what he can accomplish through you. You're not an indentured servant. You're not a peon or a screw-up or someone he can barely tolerate as long as you accomplish something meaningful for the kingdom. God could accomplish the kingdom in the breath of his nostrils if he chose, but it's you, not his servant, but his daughter and his son that is the win. He who created you, created you for intimacy with him, and the win is for you and me to discover that. He made us just a little lower than angels. Could have made us on par with angels or above them. And perhaps it's so that we're a little less independent than they. And we come back to him. We have this treasure in jars of clay on purpose. God isn't putting up with your brokenness, your frailty. He said your, his power, rather, is made perfect in your weakness. But it is doing it with him. That's the win. That's the win for God. And that's the win for which you and I were made. That's the, the win that fulfills that which a thousand successes never can. That's why Jesus Christ died on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven and free from the tyranny of sin and self, restored to our original design as daughters and sons of the King, free to rediscover that relationship for which we were created. It is the with God that is the win. So let me ask you, Tomorrow morning, we start another 2020 week. Another week in the slog. Another week of what the heck is going on? Another week of two steps forward and one step back. Can't lose for, can't win for losing. As you start that week, ask yourself, gut level honest, would I rather achieve or live near God? I dare you to be honest. And then a second question follows naturally. What would it look like for Jesus' promise 
to be manifest in my life, for me to take him up on his offer? What would it look like for Jesus to be with me always? Would you stand up with me? It's time for us to go in just a moment. Those of you who are worshiping with us house to house, we're going to pray together, bless you, and this is a natural time if you'd like to transition to your own discussion and fellowship and food. And then we're going to take a minute and and respond by being with God. We're going to respond in worship, and I'd invite you to receive him anew, experience his presence. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the truth of your promise, how we've seen it play out a thousand times. Your blessing, hardship, and your faithfulness. Thank you that you are with us always. Would you give us grace to see it, to accept it, to receive it. Change the way we think that we would be with you in every season, in every hardship. And thank you for the kingdom that is coming and that one day will be in full, that you are making all things new. You are restoring this weary and broken world, that you are restoring this weary and broken soul. Thank you that along the way you've made us to fit with you, to depend on you, And so we look to you, Jesus. You are the author and finisher of our faith. And we give ourselves to you afresh today. And Jesus, it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com.